Well, you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We find ourselves this morning in our study of this epistle in verses 29 through 34. And I must say that this is a rather obscure section of Scripture that is often overlooked, partially because it's sandwiched in between some very exciting, well-known paragraphs in this resurrection chapter, but also because no one really knows what verse 29 means. (laughs) And while we can't be certain about its meaning, we can be certain about what it does not mean, as you will see. But as we make our way through this text this morning, I'm confident that the Spirit of God will be our guide and he will bring to light some great and astounding truths that will bring conviction and bring comfort and practical instruction, which is the Spirit of God's intent all along. He didn't just stick this in here because he needed to fill up some space. It has some profound implications for our lives. Now, before we look at it, even before I read the text, let me remind you again of the context. False teachers, probably within the church at Corinth, had deceived the saints into abandoning all hope of a bodily resurrection after they died, that you're not going to see your friends and, you know, that's just not going to happen. All of that's folly. So Paul has been systematically demolishing those fortresses of deception by describing the dire consequences of denying the resurrection. And he said in verses 12 through 19, if you deny the resurrection, then Christ is still in the grave. Preaching the gospel is useless. Your faith is useless. The apostles and gospel preachers are all liars. We're still in our sins. Christians who have died are lost forever. And Christians are just the most pitiable people on the planet. And then he makes a glorious threefold announcement that we looked at last week that that Christ is the first fruits of a resurrection harvest and that the redeemed will be harvested at his coming and Christ will restore all things and reign in Trinitarian glory. Ultimately, our side wins by God's grace and we can rejoice in that. And now in verses 29 through 34, he's going to help us see three very important truths related to the certain promise of a bodily resurrection. And I've outlined it for you as simply as I can. First of all, he will speak of how resurrection furthers evangelism. Secondly, resurrection fuels self-sacrifice. And finally, resurrection fosters godliness. Now, bear in mind that this section adds to his argument that living for Christ would be utterly meaningless if there were no resurrection. Otherwise, verse 29, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So let's examine this passage carefully. First of all, under the heading of how resurrection furthers evangelism. Notice verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Now, again, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to interpret. There are some 40 different possibilities. Some of them aren't very compelling at all. Uh, some of them eh, might be, I'm going to give you the one that I think is best, and um, but, but I have to tell you, I can't be dogmatic. 
I can be dogmatic about what it doesn't mean, and as we will see, but this is a passage that has confounded exegetes uh, for centuries, and a lot of doctoral dissertations have been written on it, which will absolutely bore you out of your mind, but ultimately we will have to realize that some of these things are just obscure in that context. But we can know what it doesn't mean. And by the way, the way we know that is through the, the principle of the um, analogy of Scripture. It's a hermeneutical principle. It's basically using the Bible to interpret the Bible. All right. And where a text is unclear or ambiguous, what you do is you compare it with other passages that are clear and unambiguous. So what we can know is that verse 29 does not refer to proxy baptism. That is baptism for the dead. That was a heretical belief that a lot of Gnostics uh, held to and Mormons hold to it to this very day. I, I remember running into it on one of the a long uh, cattle roundup and drive that I was a part of. I used to do that a lot. I was in Utah and we happened to be working on a huge ranch in the middle of Utah that was owned primarily by Mormons, and a lot of the cowboys were Mormons. And I remember riding with one of them, and and uh, he, he told me that one of his cousins had died from some terrible accident, and he felt really bad. And so he was going to go to the temple and be baptized for him to make sure that he would enter into the kingdom. And I remember having a conversation, where in the world do you get that? And this was the passage, one of the passages that they use. Um, if you look it up, you will see that the Mormons say that proxy baptism is a temple ordinance for departed ancestral spirits who lived but never had the opportunity to accept the gospel during mortality and so forth. But now they have that opportunity in the spirit world. Uh, by the way, it's interesting. They have the option of accepting or rejecting. Now, I have no idea why if you're in the spirit world, you know, you would want to reject it, but that's what they say. And by the way, you cannot do it for celebrities, for Jews, or for Holocaust survivors. So that's another whole story. It's really creepy, by the way. Uh, uh, what would happen is you would go and apply to be baptized for someone, and, and, and someone with the authority of the priesthood would then escort you into a decorative baptismal font, uh, resting on statues of 12 oxen. You can go online and see this. The 12 oxen represent the 12 tribes of Israel and so forth. And there's full immersion and so forth. And, you know, I'm always amazed at not only how Satan can counterfeit biblical truth, but how gullible people are to buy into it. Now, there are others who erroneously believe that that uh, baptism is necessary for salvation. I know some of you people have come out of those backgrounds. But God clearly says that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And there are examples of people in Scripture who were saved apart from baptism. You have the, the, the penitent woman in, in Luke 7, you have the, the paralytic man in, in what, Matthew, Matthew 9, you, you've got the publican in Luke 18, you've got the thief on the cross in Luke 23 and so forth. But Acts 10 makes it clear, for example, that, that Cornelius and all of those that were with him were converted through Peter's message before they were baptized. And the New Testament reveals that forgiveness is always in connection with repentance and faith, never baptism. If, if water baptism was necessary, we would expect to find it stressed whenever the gospel was preached. And you just don't see that. And there's so many other reasons. But I might also add that it's very clear, for example, in Acts 15 and, and Romans 4 in particular, that no external act is necessary for salvation. It's always by grace through faith. Remember Genesis 15, 6, Paul, that Paul quotes in Romans 4. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, Abraham believed God and he got baptized and got saved. Now it doesn't say that. 
Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Yet despite all of this, and and much more that could be said, people believe this. Now, my point with all of this is simply to say, if personal baptism while you're alive doesn't save anyone, proxy baptism for the dead certainly doesn't save anyone. Moreover, once a person is dead, there's no second chance. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's it. So what is Paul talking about here in verse 29? Well, I believe Paul is referring to the powerful testimony departed believers have upon those who are being baptized, those that are being saved. Baptism, remember, being the sign or the testimony of their salvation. Now, let me explain this. What I just said is is an interpretation that fits not only the context, but the exegesis of the text. In the phrase, baptized for the dead, uh, the preposition for, huper in, in Greek, can also be interpreted because of. And since every obedient New Testament believer who could be baptized would be baptized, anyone who was baptized was naturally naturally considered to be a recipient of saving grace. So a possible translation would be this. Otherwise, what will those do who are being saved because of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they being saved because of them? Or that last phrase could be, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they, referring to believers that are alive today, baptized for, in other words, become believers because of the testimony of them, those faithful departed saints. Now, to be sure, many in that day, as in this day, were being saved because the because of the powerful testimony of other believers who were willing to give up everything and follow Christ. There were people that lost their their careers, their jobs, their families, even their lives. And why would they do this? Well, because they loved Christ and they believed in the resurrection. That to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord, that, was, that there was going to be a, bab, uh, a great uh, resurrection someday. And so other people would see the lives of these people. As we have seen this, they would see their contentment and their power, their love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And they would say, my, indeed, God is a saving God. He is a transforming God. He is a merciful God. He is a glorious God. And don't you know, it had to prick Saul's heart, who later became Paul, when he watched what was happening to Stephen. Think of the profound impact, dear friends, that godly saints have had on your life. For me, it was my grandparents and my parents who loved Christ. And then, you know, the circle widened. And as a young man, I saw Christ through them and pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, and so forth. And aren't we all drawn to people who so clearly and and effortlessly imitate Christ? You're just drawn to them, and you're repulsed by those that are not like Christ. And don't we all have a longing to be reunited with our loved ones that have passed on in the Lord? Of course we do. And this was certainly David's hope when the Lord, remember, took his infant son. Second Samuel 12, verse 23, but now he has died, David said. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? The answer is no. But he says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And for some of you, the longing to be reunited with a, a lost loved one is what God used to bring you to faith in Christ. You were already aware that you were a great sinner and God is a great Savior, but you fought it, and your flesh would give you a thousand reasons why, eh, you know, all that's not really for me. I'm really a good person, and after all, I belong to a church, and I do some religious things or whatever it might be. But you knew that you had never fully embraced Christ. Your heart convicted you of that by the power of the Spirit, and you just you would just push it off, push it off. Until your wife died, until your husband who knew Christ died, until your brother or your sister died, 
We all have those testimonies. So Paul's point is is this. If there is no resurrection, how do we explain those who are being saved because of the testimony of those who so clearly loved Christ but have now gone on to be with him? Secondly, resurrection fuels self-sacrifice. Notice verse 30. Paul says, why are we also in danger every hour? In other words, if if there is no resurrection, if there is no eternal reward, why do we suffer for Christ? I mean, are we just masochistic here? Why would we do that? I think of what Paul said in his testimony in 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, catch this, who raises the dead. There's the hope. God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And you will recall in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 and following, Paul gives a a sampling of the horrendous difficulties that, that he endured, all of the persecution that he encountered in his life. And none of us have experienced anything like that. So we can't fully identify with him. But to whatever degree we have suffered for Christ, why do we do that? Well, certainly because we love God. We have a longing to be with him. But we ultimately know that we will be with him and we will be with our loved ones. That's why we are willing to suffer. So dear Christian, Resurrection fuels self-sacrifice. It is the great incentive of of self-denial. It is the great hope of the redeemed when faced with imminent death. At the end of 2 Timothy, you remember Paul's about to die, and he's going to pass the mantle on to Timothy, the mantle of ministry. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 4, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Then he says this, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Again, resurrection fuels self-sacrifice. He goes on to say in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 4, gives an, an example here. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And he went on to say how that he vigorously opposed our teaching. And he says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. My, can you imagine the anguish of soul to have that happen? But notice what he says. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And as and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and, catch it now, will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Folks, without a resurrection, you wouldn't have that kind of a testimony. As I reflected upon these truths this last week, I found my mind going to the Scottish covenanters with their field preachers of Scotland when they were hunted by King Charles II, who despised their opposition to his apostate state religion that he was imposing upon people. And these were young men who loved Christ and the pure gospel of sovereign grace and yet they weren't allowed to preach it for fear of torture and, and just torture that's just frankly too gruesome to even describe. If you read what, what these people did, it's just, it, it is just demonic. 
and then to have a slow and hideous death and even bodily mutilation after you're dead. And yet their thunderous preaching of the gospel could be heard throughout the moors and and mountain recesses of Scotland in the 17th century. And in his book, The Preachers of Scotland from the 6th to the 19th century, published in 1888, uh, a Scottish theologian and historian, William, William Blakey, described these preachers this way. And I want to give you an example of, of these preachers of that day and how the resurrection fueled their self-denial, their self-sacrifice. He says, quote, if ever circumstances compelled the Lord's servants to preach as dying men to dying men, it was then. Neither preacher nor hearer could ever be sure that the dragoons, who were the British soldiers, would not burst on them before the sermon was ended, or that before nightfall their lifeblood would not be staining the ground. As a well-known writer of the time says, preachers seemed at times to feel the bloody rope around their neck or the bullet in their brain. The word came from their hearts and went to the hearts of their hearers and stuck for their conversion, confirmation, and comfort. He went on to say, persecution, like the deathbed, has a wonderful sifting power. It tears away all disguises, all shams, falsehoods, and formalities. It compels men to look the stern realities of life and death right in the face. It sweeps away the the refugees of lies and leaves only these truths to cling to which will sustain them in the agony of conflict. Then I love what he says. And what are the truths which stood this test in the times of the field preachers? They were the great saving truths of the gospel. He went on to say, it is ridiculous to fancy that men and women looking for the dragoons with but a step between them and death could be fed with the subtleties of scholasticism or the ravings of fanaticism or the denunciations of sectarian pride. No, the topics for such scenes could be no other than the incomparable grace of the Savior, the infallible certainty of his salvation, the magnificent sweep of his promises, the poverty of this world as a portion, and the unfading glory of the inheritance which he has provided and prepared for his own, end quote. Oh, dear child of God, resurrection fuels self-sacrifice. Back to the text, Paul then adds his personal testimony in verse 31. He says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. In other words, he's rejoicing with them. They were the seals of his ministry. He's essentially saying, brothers, I'm at death's door every day for the sake of Christ. It is my constant companion. I swear by it, by my pride in you. And I have a right to glory in you because I do so because together we're all in Christ. And I find this phrase, I die daily, to have a profound impact on me. Maybe it does you as well. It arrests my attention just kind of grips my soul every time I read it. You know, physically, we're all a heartbeat closer to death every second, right? None of us can escape it. None of us know when it will be our time. And sadly, those who live for themselves and have no desire to live for Christ and trust in him as their only hope of salvation live in fear of death every day. I mean, you think about it, for the ungodly, death stalks them like a shadow. For those without Christ, they have no desire to pass from this life to the next because they would have to give up everything on earth and they're not real sure what's on the other side, but down deep in their soul, they think there might be a God and I might be accountable to him. So they don't want to think about it. And yet they die daily because of their fear of that final moment that final moment that awaits them. Perhaps, like me, you have seen and heard unbelievers scream 
and reach out in desperation for anything around them as they desperately try to hold on to life in those final moments. It it is a horrifying scene. But they reach out and they scream to no avail. It's a haunting, otherworldly sound. But folks, when death comes knocking, even the atheist knows who's on the other side of the door, even though he suppresses it in his unrighteousness. Only a fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. Men and women know by creation and nature that this life is not all there is. But for the believer, death has no victory, right? It it has no sting. And this is why the Apostle Paul was so fearless. He was able to put his life in jeopardy every moment of every day for the cause of Christ. Why? Because he wanted to see men and women come to faith in Christ that they might be saved, that God might be glorified, and he knew that if he lost his life, he was just going to be transferred into glory. Paul was willing to die for Christ. Are you willing to die for Christ? Not only was Paul willing to die for Christ, he even desired to depart and be with Christ, if that would be his will. Now, why else would a man enter into a synagogue knowing full well that his message would be so despised that they would probably take him out and beat him to death with rods, scourge him and stone him? Why else would a person do that? Why else would a man stand in a public square and preach the gospel to a bunch of idolaters knowing the hatred and mockery that they would encounter, that he would encounter? Why else would a person do that unless they believed in the hope of the resurrection and all of the promises of the gospel? And yet we are often afraid to take a stand for Christ, aren't we? Fearing ridicule, fearing rejection. We're afraid to bear the loss of anything. Yet as I think of the Apostle Paul, he was unafraid to bear bear the loss of all things. Remember what he said in Philippians 3.8? I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Yes, Paul was willing to die daily for Christ. And I might add that were we able to see the scars on his, on his body, we would understand what that was really like. He knew he was an alien in a wicked world. He knew he was a stranger just passing through to a promised land. He knew he was a citizen of another kingdom, that he served the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose presence he would one day stand blameless with great joy. Beloved, this must be our perspective as well. Life is short. Nothing else matters but what you do for Christ. You know, fall is my favorite time of year. I love the cooler temperatures, don't you? I love the beautiful fall colors. But with autumn comes decay and death. Think about it. The new life that burst forth from the ground that we saw in the spring and all of the green and all the blossoms and all of the beauty gave promise of a harvest that would one day come And in the autumn and fall, it's come. And now things begin to wither. The gorgeous fall colors become nothing more than decaying leaves. A harbinger of the frigid winds of winter. And so too is life for all of us. Some of you are living in the springtime. Some of you in the summer. Some in the fall, some in the winter. But life is like a flower. We we bloom, but our root is in the very earth to which we must return. 
Job spoke of this in Job 14, 1. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a foul flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Every time I take off my clothes at night, I remember something that Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon that I heard or read years ago. I think of how I must be unclothed for that last narrow bed that I will be placed in. And every time I get up in the morning from my sleep and put on my clothes again, I'm reminded of those resurrection garments that will be mine, that will be yours for eternity. The point with all of this, dear friends, is indeed we die daily physically, but are we willing to die daily even spiritually for the cause of Christ? But I don't want us to be discouraged. Again, I was reflecting upon this, and my mind went to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light afflictions is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Dear friends, I can see Mortal life in each of you and in me, mortal life in dying bodies. I can see that. And guess what? That's temporal. But what I can't see are those resurrection bodies, those glorified bodies. I can't see it in me. And boy, I wish it was there at times, don't you? I can't see it in you. But what I can't see, what we can't see is what's eternal. This is why the resurrection fuels self-sacrifice. I, I remember the great preacher, R.G. Lee. One of his phrases and one of his sermons is, there's payday someday. I love that phrase. I've never forgotten that. He went on to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. I remember those words, but... The converse is also true for the believer. I've written it this way. Grace will take you farther than you can imagine. Grace will keep you forever in the presence of God. And grace will cost you nothing. And because of these gospel truths, we joyfully give all that we have for Christ. Paul goes on in verse 32 and he says, If if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now, this was probably just a figurative expression of the mortal dangers that he faced at the hands of evil men. But his point is well taken. We understand that if there is no resurrection, exposing oneself to life-threatening situations for the cause of Christ is pointless. In fact, it's insane. What profit would there be for me personally is what he says. Now, he's already spoke about this in chapter 15 and verse 19. He says, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. He goes on to say in verse, at the second part of verse 32, if the dead are not raised, in other words, if we just live and then we, we die and we disappear into oblivion, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, there he quotes Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. Let me remind you of the context back in Isaiah. Despite the threat of impending judgment because of the, the enormous wickedness of the people, instead of them having an attitude of repentance, genuine repentance, the people just partied. They just laughed and indulged in hedonism. So Isaiah twenty two thirteen says there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. By the way, compare 
Compare that response to the soul-satisfying joy of God's people that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 35, verse 10. He says, when the ransomed of the Lord will return, he says, and come, they will come with shouting, with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So back to Paul's point. If there is no resurrection, hedonism would be the only rational lifestyle. Studies indicate that the diagnosis of major depression is on the rise, especially among teenagers and millennials. And also, and this is not surprising, drug, alcohol, and suicide deaths are up among millennials. And there's lots of theories about this. No one's certainly dogmatic about why. Different people have different ideas, but certainly we know the, the main reasons because they don't know Christ. I mean, they have to look around and say, is this it? You millennials that are here, you know, you look around and say, is this it? I mean, is this the American dream? I've seen how it's basically a nightmare for most people. Is this all there is? I, I've been told that I'm, a, I'm nothing more than a sophisticated germ that somehow evolved from some primordial swamp that was first a gas billions of years ago. So there's no God, there's no moral absolutes, there's no purpose in life, no life after death. <laughs> well, it's just... Eat and drink, tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy a perpetual spring break. By the way, this is the same kind of futility that Solomon expressed. Remember in Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 2, he said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And the answer is absolutely absolutely nothing. There's no advantage. It's all vanity. It's all worthlessness. Unless you commit your life to accomplishing the purposes of God in his kingdom, for his glory, for your good. And so, again, the point is if, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if God doesn't have a plan that he's working, that he's accomplishing, then what's the point of all this suffering? <laughs> you know, I have to admit, I, I've thought about that before. I mean, do you really think that it's fun being a pastor at times? I mean, you poor people have to put up with my sin, and I have to put up with yours. And together, we all have to put up with all the sin in the world. We have to endure all of this wickedness. And if there were no resurrection, if it was just, well, you know, you're going to do this. Until, I mean, why would anybody do that? But praise God. What does Paul said in verse 20? Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So in his argument here, we see the resurrection furthers evangelism and it fuels self-sacrifice and finally it fosters godliness. I love what he says here in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Obviously, they had been deceived. And Paul is very concerned about it. Now, to understand this text, I want you to know that the term company is homilia. In the original language, we get our word homily from that. So it can refer to a sermon, a lecture, but it can also be translated as, as associations and even the idea of consorting with or joining with others over a period of time. So what he's saying here is do not be, be deceived, because some of you are. Don't be deceived by bad sermons, by bad teaching, by bad company the people that you're hanging around with that are believing this stuff, because it will corrupt the way you live. That's the warning. You know, errant doctrine, bad theology is bound to corrupt you. These things, dear friends, are more insidious and more dangerous than I can possibly tell you. 
They are as, are doctrines of demons, Paul calls them. They will mislead you. So the point is, you need to stay away from those, especially in this context, anyone that would deny the bodily resurrection of Christ and the redeemed. You need to stay away from those people because those people will corrupt your thinking because they are inspired by demons. They will lead you away from right doctrine. You move away from right doctrine, you'll move away from right living. So you'll end up thinking, well, you know what? I guess maybe there, maybe there isn't a resurrection and maybe there isn't any judgment. Maybe it is just oblivion. So, hey, give me a beer, you know, pour me another round. Let's party. Let's live it up. By the way, this is reminiscent of the self-indulgent, irresponsible leaders of, of Israel who engaged in, in drunken debauchery rather than shepherding the people. In Isaiah 56, 12, they say, come, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow we will be like today, only more so. Folks, I want to I want to tell you some things here from Scripture that's so important for you to hear. This is another whole sermon in and of itself. But what are we to do with false teachers, heretics in our family, etc.? I was talking with some dear ones just the other day about this. Well, there's a number of passages. I'm just going to go over them very briefly. Titus 3.10 says to reject a factious man, a heretikos, a heretic. Reject that person. Have nothing to do with them. Such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Perverted, a Greek term that means they take the truth and they turn it inside out and they twist it. Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That's the danger, the deception of unsuspecting people. And our churches are filled with them today. Second Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 17, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Second John 1, beginning in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, if a heretic comes to you, what do you do? Do not receive him into your house. When the Jehovah's Witnesses come, I remind them of this text. Do not receive them into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Jude speaks of false teachers and he tells us that we are to hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. The point is heresy is contagious. False teaching is so deceptive and so dangerous that it can affect you like radioactivity, shall we say. Don't let it into your mind. Don't let it into your house. Don't let it into your church. Don't let it into the circle of your family or your friends. That's why we're always on the guard here at the church. You know, there's, there's sheep dogs, there's wolves, and there's sheep, right? As a pastor, I'm a sheep dog. And when I see a wolf, I don't buddy up to him. I'm going to go kill him. That's how we have to be, dear friends, with our families. Don't let them in your churches. Bad doctrine will destroy you. Do not be deceived, he says. Now, in this context, the bad company and the bad preaching had to do with the denial of the resurrection, which led to hedonism, right? If there's no resurrection, let's just live it up. That's what some of the people were doing. Live for yourself. Take in all the pleasure you can. There is no God, no judgment, low, no life after death, so pour me another round. You know, it's just happy hour which, by the way, is denial hour for people. Verse 34, he says, Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I mean, literally, what he, when he says sober-minded, he's saying sober up. It's like you're drunk here. 
I mean, sober up. Come out of your drunken stupor. Do not allow yourself to remain under the influence of your emotions that, that, that cause you to lose control and, and begin to do things that are, that are wicked. That's why he says, and stop sinning. Folks, do you realize that when you spend time reading or listening to heretics, that that is sin? Attending their churches, their seminars, that's sin. He says, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. And to be sure, anybody that denies the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ and the redeemed has no knowledge of God. They've got a knowledge of a God that they've created, but it's not the one true God of the Bible. By the way, this would include most liberal denominations. Most that are involved in, in the Methodist denomination, the, uh, a lot of Anglicans, uh, Episcopalians, not all, but th- those types of denominations. I was reading recently of a prominent, prominent Methodist church in Washington, D.C. They hosted a resurrection-denying seminar on historical Jesus. Boy, wouldn't you love to go to that? I had to put up with a lot of this stuff and doctoral studies, hearing these these liberals and reading some of them, reading more about that. They said the, the, the historical figure of Jesus was not intended to be the center of worship, rather a sage pointing towards a politically utopian kingdom of God, according to two lecturers who spoke at the event. You see, folks, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad preaching, bad theology corrupts good morals. I read about a, the, the Hymn Society in Canada has released a new queer hymns for LGBTQIA2S+. I don't have any idea what all that means. But it's got to pretty well cover the gamut. Hymn Society in Canada has released this. And the Anglican Journal... The publican or the publication of the Anglican Church of Canada publicized the songs which were promptly shared online by the U.S. based Episcopal Church. And I was reading this. Among the offered musical compositions are, and I catch this, quote, a hymn for self acceptance. Another one is, God calls you good. Another one, God of queer transgressive spaces. And another one, the kingdom of God is the queerest of nations. Folks, do not be deceived. Bad preaching, bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Well, in closing, by way of application, just a few thoughts. This kind of goes without sayings, but folks, guard your mind from falsehood. Because what you believe determines how you live. You know, make sure you have a MacArthur Study Bible. <laughs> make sure that you only listen and read sound theologians. If you're unsure, give me a call, as many of you do. By the way, popular seldom means God-honoring. So when you look at a best-selling book, that doesn't always mean, boy, now that's, that's what I want to read. And if you're in a church that embraces liberal or some kind of charismatic theology, run, don't walk to get away from it. Come out and be separate from that stuff. It'll poison your mind. You know, you're not going to fix it. It's going to fix you. You put a couple of good apples in a barrel of rotten apples, and the good ones aren't going to make the rotten ones good. The opposite will happen. Secondly, dear friends, guard the minds of your children. We've got so many families here with kids. I've got grandkids. It's just such a burden of mine. I hope it is for you. They are undiscerning. Many of them are unsaved. And they are vulnerable. And Satan is clever and he is ferocious. And he's targeting your kids. The YouTube channel hosts a popular program. One of my dear brothers here in the church sent this to me. I think it was yesterday. It's called Queer Kid Stuff. This particular one was episode 12, I think it was called T is for Trans, Transgender, and it's got thousands of subscribers. I can only listen to about a couple of minutes of it. I I literally began to get nauseated as I watched what was going on. 
Guard what goes into the minds of your kids, folks. And then thirdly and finally, learn to die daily to self and to the world for the glory of Christ. Learn what that means for you and for your family. You know, are you willing to die for Christ? Do you even desire to be with Christ? If so, that attitude will loosen your grip on this world and you will be effective in ministry. You need to treasure the things of God, not the things of the world. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And cultivate just the garden of holiness in your heart. Your own personal pursuit of holiness. Spend much time in the word, much time in prayer. Immerse yourself in sound biblical preaching. And serve Christ with all your heart. And I close with... The quote that I gave you in your bulletin, I believe it's there. I haven't looked at the bulletin. I think it is. Spurgeon said this, to die daily, it will be necessary that you come every day, just as you did at conversion, to the cross of Christ. As a poor, guilty sinner and rest in him, I do not know anything that is more delightful, more necessary, or more profitable than a renewal of the look of faith I have always found when I've been in fear as to my safety or have had hard thoughts of death pressing heavily upon me that my only resort has been a humble resort to the atonement. And then he gives the example of the great missionary to India, William Carey. He said, Carey ordered that they should write on his tombstone, quote, a guilty, weak, and helpless worm On Christ's kind arms I fall. He is my strength and righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. May this be the solemn attitude of each of our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the clarity of your word and the power of it to convict and to comfort And I pray that because of what we have examined here today, that the seeds of truth will bear much fruit to the praise of your glory. And I pray especially for that person that may not know Christ as Savior, that person that may have a form of godliness, the outward appearance of religiosity, maybe someone that's been in this church for years, but they've never truly embraced Christ in repentant faith. Oh, Father, I pray that you will bring such conviction that today will be the day that they will experience the miracle of the new birth. So we commit all of this to you. And thank you for your sovereign grace in our lives. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.